Uh, today we're, we're turning to Psalm 13. There's a distinct difference here uh, between this psalm and the others we've studied to this point in, in the summer. The Psalm 2 is a little different than the others, but so far this summer, our, our focus has really been on comforting psalms and jubilant praises and things like that. And today, Psalm 13 is a lament, and it's, it's an expression of sorrow, of mourning, of, of da- David giving voice to, to this grief and, and, and hardship he feels. Uh, it's, it's a season that he's in, in which he feels the Lord is distant. It's a feeling, it's an experience It may not be founded in truth, but it's the real thing he's feeling and experiencing. He feels the Lord is distant. He feels the Lord is silent. And we did a series on lamenting back when the pandemic, when COVID and all that stuff lit off. It was like April, May of 2020, uh, because I, I think it's been my experience that the church, especially the American church, we don't really understand what it is to lament. We're, we're almost unintentionally develop, we unintentionally develop these ideas that we must always have a smiling face and how you doing? I'm doing good. And any other answer is unacceptable, right? Like that's, it's just the way we tend to approach things. And so um, when all of that happened, it became clear that I I felt like it became clear that the church, uh, not just ours, but really generally speaking, the American church just didn't understand how to voice their grief and how to call on the Lord in an honorable but even direct and serious way. And so we did that. So, so I would encourage you, we did the psalm in, the, in that time, and I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons if you're looking and, and seeking to learn and understand how to lament. That's not what we're going to be doing today. In fact, I wanted to do this psalm because the last time we looked at it, we looked at it as a pattern for, the, for a Christian to lament by, uh, which we defined, we defined it back then as lamenting as an expression of sorrow in which the depth of mourning is as intense as the intensity of hoping. So, so mourning is offset by hope, right? And, and our sorrow is answered by the hope we have in Christ. I built that definition from Second Thessalonians, but, but I think you'll even see it expressed in this psalm today. But today, I, I didn't want to come at this again as an opportunity for us to learn how to lament because in doing so we left so much we just overlooked a lot we we, there's so many lessons we could have learned and uh, so many things we could have drawn out other than just simply how do we give voice to our own grief because everyone mourns everyone everyone deals with this right so so it's necessary it's good for us to to see it but but as we walk through these Six verses, which really break down into three stanzas. I think there's so much more to see here than just an opportunity for us to voice our own grief. But we can we can learn that in the midst of grief, there is so much more to depend on, so much more to place our faith in, so much more reason to endure and and continue calling on the Lord. So 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 we're going to study today from Psalm 13, verses one through six. Read them. We'll pray, and then we'll dig in. So, so let's read them now. Psalm 13 says this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me. O Lord, my God, 
Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But, it's not part of the sermon, but gosh, that's a big three-letter word. But, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Father, meet us now. Hear our prayer. As I think about the people in the room and I just look at the people represented here today and consider the people in our church and think of the stories and the circumstances of their life. For many of them, I know the hardship. I know that it's felt like a long, hard season. I know that some of them are just beginning, but are already wondering how long. Would you meet us today? Would you attend to our pleas today? Would you give us reason to endure? in faith today. I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. And we don't know the details of David's hardship. We don't, we don't know the enemy that he's facing off against. There's lots of conjecture, lots of ideas that are presented. You know, he's not praying and asking God. It's not an imprecatory psalm, which is a, is a psalm seeking justice and destruction of an enemy. So some people think it's it's maybe Saul before, before David was actually, he was anointed king, but then he was, by, by the time he actually took the throne, Saul had become his enemy, and, and, and David sought to honor him as king. That was the Lord's, right? He was the Lord's man. And then Absalom, uh, his son, re- re- led a rebellion against him. And so some people think it's, it's maybe them uh, or one of them, but we just don't know. And I'm thankful that we don't know. Because it could be that it's a spiritual enemy. It could be that it's a physical enemy. It could be that it's a, a difficult circumstance. It could, it, we're, we're just left in this place where we understand the general reality of David's hardship. And I love that it's David writing this psalm that we're studying this morning because David is called, in the scripture, a man after God's own heart. He's a hero of the faith, right? Like he's listed in Hebrews 11 as, as, as in the hall of faith as, as a man of faith. Now I'm questioning that in my head. I'll have to go look to make sure, but I feel like he, he's, he's clearly a, a man who is in covenant with God or, or who God made promises to. And, and he, he is someone who uh, God has covenanted with and, and promised you will have someone sit on your throne forever. There was, his, his throne would be established eternally. And, and this large, looming figure in the scripture is not left without trouble. And just consider that for a minute, because I think one of the reasons that we struggle as, as a, a modern American church dealing with hardship is because somewhere in our minds we've allowed the health and wealth gospel, even if we would reject it, we still allow its influence in our life, and must be that if God loves us, we will live on easy street till the day he returns, right? If I have enough faith, then God will do good to me, and, and I will enjoy his blessings every day of my life, and trouble will be not so troublesome. But here's a man of faith. Here's a man who 
God used mightily in the scripture. Here's a man who was in covenant with God, and yet he grieved. If you remember a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 23, Matthew Henry's comment about Psalm 23 that so many of David's psalms are, are, are filled with complaint. Psalm 23 is filled with comfort, but, but this fits that mold. This is filled with complaint. But there's another aspect here that I'm so thankful for that, that is David writing this psalm. Because the trouble and the hardship don't diminish or extinguish his faith or to keep him from turning to the Lord. From the very beginning of the psalm, the Lord is in view. His God, creator and sustainer of all things. How long, O Lord, this whole psalm is a plea to God such that we can learn this. I, I believe this is one of, the, one of the lessons I would like, not I believe, this is one of the lessons I would like you to learn that I wanted us to ensure we got to. Even when the Lord seems distant or silent and the circumstances of life seem too much to bear, we can trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. I think David understood this. I think David knew it. I don't think David was, was immune to the hardships of life. I don't think he misunderstood or in some way was, was surprised by the difficulty he faced. But in the midst of it, where did he turn? The Lord. See, he, he starts focused on hardship. But he ends in confidence. The Lord's divine concern was, was, was filling his mind, was the focus of his heart. David knows the Lord, and he knows the Lord loves him. David knows that the Lord would not abandon him in the midst of his circumstances, even though his circumstances may tell a different story. Can you relate to that? The, 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 I, I mean, you've all, you, you, you maybe have heard people talk about this before. You know, we talk about that this is just a season. It's just a season we're in. But when you begin to say that enough, it's not, it's, wait a minute, seasons last about three months, and then you get to the next season, and then you get to the next season. And then, but if you're always in the season, then it must just be the norm, right? Like, this is just the norm. This is just the way it is. Sometimes circumstances tell us the story that, that we're abandoned, that we're alone, that we're isolated, that God is silent, that God is not working, that God has somehow left us. Sometimes the way we feel, sometimes the way we perceive things, sometimes the, the experience tells us that we're all alone, that he's not doing anything for me. But David knows something different. And in the depths of our hearts, we know something different. The steadfast love of the Lord will not give into hopelessness and it, it, it will not lead us into despair. Even when the Lord seems distant or silent and the circumstances of life seem too much to bear, we can trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. John Calvin commenting on, on this psalm, he writes, to acknowledge in the midst of our afflictions that God has, has really a care about us is not the usual way with men. Or what the feelings of nature would prompt. But by faith. But by faith we apprehend his invisible providence. Now I'm just going to go ahead and preface the rest of what we're going to go through today with this a, a comment. 
this sermon, this text, this, this, this is focused at God's people, Christian, follower of Christ, one who has trusted in and placed his faith in Jesus. Without faith, there is no apprehension of these things. And so, believer, for you today, I, I, I would call you to, to just trust the Lord. Just learn to trust him. Non-Christian, one who's believing in someone else or something else or in yourself, I would call you to look to Jesus and trust in him. And by faith, begin to apprehend and begin to understand in some small way the steadfast love of the Lord. Because it is not natural for us in the midst of hardship to think that God cares. Why do you think one of the biggest questions of apologetics, one of the, one of the seemingly hardest questions of apologetics to answer is if God is so good, why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering in the world? Because it's not natural for us to think that there could be suffering in a loving God. It's unnatural to us to think that way. It takes us understanding what he did through Jesus on the cross to begin to understand that there can be some way in which suffering brings us something more than just more suffering. It's hard for us to imagine naturally in and of ourselves that in our suffering God is still being good to us. It takes faith. If not for David's faith and the truth of God's steadfast love, it's not just David's faith, right? It's the truth of God's steadfast love. If you're believing in a lie, it's still a lie. It's the, it's the faith of David and the truth of God's steadfast love that hopelessness and despair, they're the only, it's the only reason that David didn't end up in hopelessness and despair. And if not for faith and the truth of God's steadfast love, hopelessness and despair would be the, would be the common lot of all mankind. But it doesn't have to be. This psalm, it wouldn't be able to move or progress beyond the questions, how long, O oh Lord? In fact, I would suggest that probably in the midst of that, if not for faith and the truth of God's steadfast love proven to us in Jesus Christ, we couldn't even say how long, O Lord. We would never say how long, O Lord. We would just say how long. And we might say, O Lord, but it would be more like how long, O Lord. In some cultural, just ethereal, non-sincere way directed in communicating and praying to the Lord of the heavens. And the earth. But brother and sister Christian, even when the Lord seems distant or silent and the circumstances of life seem too much to bear, we can trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. But the difficulty and the hardships be so overwhelming when the season is extensive. Let's just be serious. Let's just be honest for a moment. It doesn't even have to be that long. Right? Isn't, it, isn't it true that in the midst of hardship, it seems longer than it really is? Like, doesn't it seem to, 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 tr- to prove itself out in, in, in your experience that, that, that we walk into, that, that the days that are easy, they fly by, but the days that are difficult, they seem to drag on? It's understandable. That this question comes to mind. It's understandable that, that it's pressed in upon us and in our hearts as, as we consider the circumstances and the perspectives we hold. How long? There's a common question in Scripture. How long? 
Especially in the Psalms, we see it, David, here in Psalm 13, but again in Psalm 35. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. Asaph in Psalm 79.5. Just to give you some insight, it's not just David asking this question. It's not just David that has complaints to offer to God. Asaph in Psalm 79.5. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Ethan, the Esrahite. Psalm 89.46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? All the way back at the end of the Bible, there were saints in Revelation. This came to mind as I was reading this week, and I remember this question being asked. Revelation 6.10. They cried out with a loud voice. The saints that were, that, that, that were um, uh, under the, they, they were dressed in white. They were under the, the, the um, uh, altar, or they were at the altar. And he said, they say, oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? Before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. How long? And, and, and though they didn't ask the question, how long, not in those words exactly, when Jesus' disciples asked him just before his uh, arrest, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives and they're looking out over the city, Matthew 24, and, and, and they're asking him about the end and asking when his kingdom will finally and fully be established. And, 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 and just before he ascends into heaven in Acts 1, they wanted to know the timeline again. Is now the time that you're going to establish and restore the kingdom of Israel? They didn't use the, the words how long, but they're concer- concerned about time. They're concerned about if it's not now, when is it? How long do we have to wait before it occurs? How long? It's such a common question. We, we hear it all the time. And, and maybe, maybe even you've learned to block it out or not consider it or even just ignore it. If you're a parent, you know this is a common question, right? I remember it with my kids, but boy, I'm being reminded as a grandparent. I knew it as a parent, but I'm being reminded as a grandparent. As soon as we get in the car, Gavin, are, are we there? Uh, how, how, how much further do we have to go? How long will it be? Are, are we there? We, we went kayaking. Amy and I, we were on vacation last week, and, and which I'm so blessed for. Thank you for for allowing us that opportunity. We got to go away and, and spend our anniversary together. And, and uh, we went kayaking. We didn't really go away. We, we had a staycation, I guess. We, we, we found out that Amy loves kayaking. And, and so we're going to do more of it as soon as she twisted her ankle one day. And so we, she's got to heal, but, but she wants to do more of it. And anyway, one of the days, uh, two of the days actually, uh, Gavin was with us. And, and he, came, he was in my boat. And I bet we're not in the river on the river, because if you're in the river and you're kayaking, that's bad. We were on the river. <laughs> we, 10 minutes maybe. Are, are we there? How much farther? How long do we have to do this? And he was having fun, like he's playing in the water. And, but man, he just constant. how much longer? How, how far is it? He's always wanting to know. You kids know you ask that question. But you adults know you ask that question too. Right? As soon as the hardship begins, 
how long do I have to endure this? You may not be asking it on a road trip, but it's not that you never ask it. And here in Psalm 13, David, David seems at first, in, at least, to be overwhelmed with the intensity of his hardship and wanting to know how long. And he, and he asks it four different ways. How long? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me? Hey, just think about that. This is a sovereign God, the all-knowing, ever-present, present everywhere at all times. Knowing all things and never having to learn anything. This God, will you forget me? Will you consider me again? How long will you hide your face from me is, is the question. But, but, but the idea here is in both the forgetting and the, and the consideration, it's a spiritual concern. that These, two first, these first two questions offered in, in, the, in the idea of how long, it, it's... It's concerned with the spiritual relationship, with the spiritual connection. Now, these spiritual concerns affect the next two questions. Because presumably, if the Lord remembered David or was looking at David, was considering David, he wouldn't feel alone. He wouldn't have to be concerned about being defeated because God would be for him and God would be working in his favor. We need to recognize this. Our struggles... The, the circumstances that we deal, the horizontal issues of this life are difficult. I don't want to diminish them. I don't, want to, I, I don't want to say anything different. They are difficult struggles. They are real and oftentimes substantial and can seem overwhelming. But there is always, for God's people at least, there's always a spiritual component. What we believe about the Lord who we believe him to be, what we believe about his character has much to do with how we face everything else. And when David starts asking, he starts with the spiritual concern. Will you forget me? Will you consider me again? This, it, 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 the, the, the idea here is, 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 is more practical help. It's not just this It's not just this theory that David has in his mind. It's not just this idea of, of um, I, I, want, I want to see evidence of you. He wants God to act. He's not recognizing God's help. Hiding and, and not looking on us in the Old Testament are really questions of practical help, of support. And so, so, so here's what he's looking for. Here's what he's wanting. And he's thinking, God, are you not seeing me? Do you not know what I'm enduring here? Do you not understand what I'm facing here? Have you quit thinking about me? Are you no longer watching over me? You ever felt that? You ever feel like you're all alone? And abandoned by the Lord? You feel like he's distant from you? How long, O Lord? Will you, will you give counsel to me again? Look at, look at it, his, his third question. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Will I know the goodness of your voice in my life again? And see, this is where he, he's, he's stuck in his own head and his own experience and his own little bubble of what he sees and perceives and, and interprets. And he, he's, just, he's stuck in that. He can't see any availing. He can't see any victory. He can't see any overcoming. All he sees is the sorrow. 
But it starts with the fact that he thinks God's silent. Will you counsel me? Will you let me hear your perspective? Will you let me know your heart? Will you let me know your love? Will you let me know? I don't know how, how, how bad it has to get for you to, to feel this way or, or if this has ever happened with you. But I know some of the deepest, darkest seasons of my life, even in my ministry, one, some of which came just this last year. And in this season, when everything else seemed to be falling apart, all I could see was the darkness. All I could see was the hardship. All I could, all I could view was the, the difficult circumstance. And it filled my mind so much so that I wasn't thinking about the good. All I could think about was the negative. All I could think about was the bad. All, it, it consumed me. His fourth question, how long, Lord, will you leave me to defeat and destruction? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me is the question he asked. Are you going to let me be destroyed by these people? Are you actually raising them up over me? Are you giving them power to... How long is this going to go? It's easy to say things like, if God is for us, who can stand against us? But what happens when suddenly it seems like they're standing against us? And we're losing. It's so amazing, though, that, that, that here he is addressing the Lord and in asking the questions, he is admitting, he is admitting his dependence on the Lord. I need your countenance. I need your face. I need your, your, your consideration. I need your presence. I need your voice. I need to hear from you. I need you to work on my behalf. So it's not all bad. It's just, it's just recognition. I need you. How long will it be that before I see you and feel you and experience you? So rather than wallowing in, in hopelessness and despair, he clings to the faith that he has in the steadfast love of the Lord. Even when the Lord seems distant or silent and the circumstances of life seem too much to bear, we, like David, can trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. And what's interesting about this psalm is that he never actually gets an answer to these questions. Does he? Before he comes to the end of the psalm and before his attitude changes and before his perspective opens up, David is never told how long it's going to be. He's never made aware of the end of his heart, that, uh, of when the end of his hardship will come. But he turns from wondering how long to remembering who the Lord is and what the Lord's done. Knowing the Lord and his steadfast love is better than knowing how long. Knowing the Lord in His steadfast love is better than knowing how long. More than we need to know the timeline of the events of our lives or the timeline of God's plans, we need to know the Lord and His steadfast love. And I would just call your attention to, to this again. I think we've called it out every psalm we've looked at. But in most English translations, you're going to come to how long, O Lord, and that Lord is going to be capitalized. It's going to happen again in verse uh, 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord, capitalized Lord. And again, he, he says down here that I will sing to the Lord, capitalized 
Lord. That is the proper name, the personal name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. They've lost the pronunciation and the actual spelling because they were using abbreviations, abbreviated name. That's just the way Hebrew did it. So we don't know whether it was Yahweh or Jehovah, but it's his personal name. It's his covenant name. It's the name that he gave to Moses. When Moses said, hey, who am I supposed to say sent me? He says, tell them I am sent you. Tell them Yahweh sent you. It's the name he took upon himself for his people, his covenant people to call him by. And I gave you this quote a couple of weeks ago, but I thought it just fitting here again because we need to recognize who the Lord is. We need to know the Lord. If his steadfast love is going to mean anything, we need to know who this Yahweh is. James Boyce writes, the name literally means I am who I am. It is an inexhaustible name like its bearer. Chiefly, it refers to God's timelessness on the one hand and to his self-sufficiency on the other. Self-sufficiency means that God needs nothing. He needs no wisdom from anyone else. He has all wisdom in himself. He needs no power. He is all-powerful. He does not need to be worshipped or helped or served, nor he is, is he accountable to anyone. He answers only to himself. This is our God, self-existent, all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, all things created for him, by him, and to him. This is God. And it's better to know him than to know his timeline. It's better to know his steadfast love even than his timeline. This steadfast love, the word is hesed. It's a Hebrew word that is often defined this way. I'll take it from Vine's uh, dictionary, expository dictionary. Loving kindness, steadfast love, grace, mercy, faithfulness, goodness, and devotion. It's used over 240 times in the Old Testament, sometimes referring to people, sometimes referring to God. In general, it says, in general, the article goes on, one may identify three basic meanings of the word which always interact. Strength, steadfastness, and love. Any understanding, any understanding of the word that fails to suggest all three inevitably loses some of its richness. The association of hesed with covenant keeps it from being misunderstood as mere providence or love for all creatures. It applies applies primarily to God's particular love for his chosen and covenanted people. This this, this, This is the way it's used over and over in relation to God and his people that it demonstrates and it speaks to the steadfast particular love God has for his people. The whole world has known and experienced his love to some degree. But just like a husband doesn't love all women the same way he loves his wife, God loves his people more intentionally and more purposely than he loves everyone. That's hard for some people to swallow. But he is this God and he loves this intensely. It's better knowing his love and this Lord than how long it must last. Incidentally, I just, I, I just would mention, I, I mentioned the questions the apostles raised earlier, right? They, they sat on the Mount of Olives and they said, hey, is now the time you're going to, is, is, are you about to establish your kingdom finally and fully? Let's have some, give us some information. Let us know when, when is it going to happen? Are there signs we can be looking for? And, and Jesus answers to them. Do you know his answer to them? Who knows? Only the father knows these things. We're so good about putting up putting up big graphics and timelines to show what all's happening. Oh man, it's going to happen. We're so fixated sometimes on how long 
something's going to last or when something's going to occur. When I think the intention of things like this and psalms like this and, and, and perspectives like this is it's better to know the Lord and the steadfast love of the Lord and to trust in it than it is to know how long. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, his, his disciples come to him. This is after his resurrection, just before his ascension. And they're like, are you going to do it now? Is now the time? Are, are you going to uh, restore the kingdom to Israel? Is now the time? And his answer to them, Acts 1.8, do you remember his answer? It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. It's gentle rebuke and correction. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But he's going to tell them what they should be focusing on and thinking about. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and not in Judea and all Samaria to the end of the earth. It's better to know the Lord and the steadfast love of the Lord, to trust in these things, to know how long. Sometimes we get so distracted with the question, how long, that we forget who this God is that we're asking the question to. I don't want to imply, and and I don't think it was Jesus' intent to apply this with his answers. I don't want to imply that it's sinful or disrespectful toward God to ask these questions. These psalms of lament, that they're in the Bible. They're divinely inspired words that enable us to learn and, and express and give voice to our grief. It's good and okay and right to do so if we never forget who it is we're addressing and how he loves us while we're addressing it. I mean, what's the answer going to do for us anyway? I mean, think about this. So, so Gavin gets into the car or, or, or gets into the kayak. How long are we there yet? I, I could tell him. Well, that's about, it's a, it's a, Three mile, I think the second one we went on was a five mile flow. It's five miles. It's going to take us about two and a half, three hours. What's that do for him? Does that help him avoid any of the river? Any of the hardships that will come out the twists and turns of the river? Does, does it help him deal with anything on the river? What does five miles mean to him? What does two hours, three hours mean to him? What if the Lord answered us every time we said, how long? What would it do for us? What would it mean to us? How would it really help us? It may satisfy some curiosity. See, I don't think it's wrong or disrespectful. I don't think it's sinful to ask the Lord how long. So long as we're not only trusting in the Lord because he tells us how long. That's not what David does here. David doesn't trust in the Lord because he tells him and answers to him and and, and bows before David. David doesn't get an answer to the how long. He's just reminded of who it is he's speaking to and how the one he's speaking to, the Lord, loves him steadfastly. That's the whole purpose of this. That's the whole point of this. Having the, having the answer to when or, or how long doesn't really change anything for us, but, but knowing and entrusting ourselves to the Lord and His sovereign love changes everything. Because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we, like David, can trust Him, the Lord, to hear our prayer. That's exactly what's happening here. 
A lot of the people I read from, they, they say that, oh, you know, David asks the questions, how long? There it is. He starts, how long, O Lord? And how long, how long, how long? And then they say he turns to prayer. I would suggest he started praying the moment he said, how long, O Lord? He's praying. He's already asking the Lord. Now, his, his supplication, his questions change in the second stanza in verses 3 and 4. Consider me. It feels like you're not considering me. So first there's the, the spiritual issue that he's, that he's addressing. Consider me. Answer me, O Lord. I need you. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say he moves from the, from the, the spiritual to the, to the personal, physical circumstances of his life. Light up my eyes. I'm feeling worn out. I'm at the end of myself, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy, those horizontal circumstances, have prevailed. Do something. He's been praying. And because of what he says next, I think that's the foundation of the reason he's praying to begin with. But... And there's this sudden shift and change. This contrasting picture. I have trusted. In what? In your hesed. In your steadfast love. In your covenant love for your people. In your sincere and purposeful love that you have, that you have worked strongly. That endures. That's actively moving and benefiting me. This loving kindness, this grace and mercy, this faithfulness you've shown to me. This is what I'm trusting in. And so he prays. Because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we can trust him to hear our prayer. He is never too distant to hear us pray. He is never too far away. He is always with us. The Lord promised us He will never leave us or forsake us. At the risk of being too cliche, or maybe even dating myself to some degree, I don't know if this is still popular or not, but that, there's the poem Footprints, where the, where the author starts and sees two footprints and looks back, and in the times of hardship only sees one, and assumes, naturally assumes. The Lord left them. In the middle of it. That's the natural man, right? Like that's, that's what Calvin's getting at. The natural man doesn't think, oh man, the Lord is at work. The natural man thinks I've been abandoned. It's by faith that we begin to apprehend that the Lord's actually carrying us and it's his footprints we see and not our own. Now I know, I, I, maybe you got problems with that poem. Maybe you could point out some... But, but for the purpose of illustration, I'm not asking you to base your old doctrine and theology on it. He has a proven history of working with his people. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and begin to read and see him working and being faithful to himself and to his people. We have every reason to believe that he will continue to do so. We have every reason to believe that when we pray, he will hear our prayer. Because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we can rejoice even as we 
endure. I love that David didn't wait to get the answer how long, and he didn't wait to till the trouble was over, seemingly within a, a, a few lines of, of uh, poetry and a, a few words of prayer, his whole attitude changes and it moves from downcast to rejoicing and celebration. I can't help but think of our recent study in Philippians where Paul himself was imprisoned for his faith. He was afflicted by other Christians who were jealous of his ministry. He was facing off against people who put him in prison for the sake of his faith. (laughs) And he knows of a church that's struggling to get along. He's concerned for his brothers and sisters, and yet he rejoiced. He didn't wait till he got out of prison. He didn't wait till circumstances were right. If we're waiting for the right circumstance to begin to rejoice in the Lord, when will we ever rejoice in the Lord? Because seasons extensive are extensive, and even when one's over, there's another one coming. And for some of us, it seems like the season is just the norm. I love that David sets that example too. And it's an example we can follow. Because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we can confidently expect His salvation. I have trusted in your love. My heart shall rejoice. Rejoice in what? Your salvation, we can confidently look forward to being delivered, to being saved. There is light at the end of every one of our tunnels. This is as bad as it will ever be for the people of God, for the children of the Lord. The hardship you face today, you may say, oh, it could get worse. Maybe it could, but there's light coming. There's light dawning. You will be saved. The Lord will deliver us. He he, he will save us. Our our path will will lead us to the day of glory. In in a song by the Grey Havens, it's it's one of their first albums, at least one of the first ones I heard. Um, The the song is titled Shadows of of the Dawn. It's a song about what, what I think is about the the now and not yet of the Christian life, that now, right now, we kind of experience these things and we have the hope of these things, but they're coming. They're, the, the dawn is breaking. We've been blessed abundantly. There's nothing the Lord has held back from us, but, but there are ways that we're not fully experiencing the abundance of that blessing, and there's more to come. The Chorus reminds us of the life that we live and the path that we that we run or the, the, the race that is set before us, it says, but I won't wait, resting my bones. I'll take these foolishness roads of grace and run toward the dawn. How many of us have, have thought, Lord, what are you doing? It just doesn't make sense. If you just do this, if you just follow my advice, if you just take my counsel, things would be great. It doesn't, doesn't make sense sometimes the way he works to us. It doesn't, it doesn't add up. It's not logically, uh, it doesn't logically flow in our minds sometimes. And sometimes it seems like foolishness. I won't wait, resting my bones. I'll take these foolishness roads of grace and run toward the dawn. And when I rise and dawn turns today, when I cross that line, when dawn turns today, I'll shine as bright as the sun. And these roads that I've run will be wise. The Lord is wise in ways we'll never fully comprehend until we're able to stand on the other side 
and look back and see where he led us. Because, because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we can confidently expect to be saved. And when we're saved and we cross that line, we can be certain we won't be disappointed in how he got us there. Because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we can persevere in singing his praises. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. I I don't know if it ever happens to you. I just don't feel like praying. Oh, gosh, I just feel so beat down. I, I I just don't feel like even thinking on him. But when you consider his love, when you consider who he is and what he's done on your behalf through the cross of Jesus Christ, are you not moved with awe? Are you not ready to sing out loud and sing his praises? Because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we can persevere in singing his praises. Because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we can be sure he is always good to us. I will sing to the Lord. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. He is always good. Everything he does is good. We are children of blessing, not children of wrath. He is always working for our good. Romans 8.28. I think that's the first one that comes to mind when I say words like that. Probably for you. And we know. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But this is a truth that's expressed all across the scripture. One that came to mind this week as I was thinking on these things. Actually, it was last week. But Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 11. I don't know if you remember going through Ecclesiastes for those of you who were here back then. But, oh man, it, it comes back to mind all the time. Not just this passage, but the whole thing. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace, for everything that he starts, for everything. And so he gives us this long list of, 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 of virtual opposites of, of, of 180 degrees of exposure. For everything, there's a season. I don't even think it's an exhaustive list. It's a long list, but it's not an exhaustive list. For everything, there's a season. And he shows us those seasons, times for hardship and times for good, times for, for, for suffering and times for, for, for um, uh, prospering. But he comes in and as, as he thinks about these things, he comes to this question, what gain has the worker from his toil? Because he recognizes God is in control of all of these seasons. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Every season, He has made it beautiful in its time. 
you and me, he's making beautiful in our time. He's put eternity in man's hearts yet so that he cannot find out what, what God has done from the beginning to the end. We can't fathom this in, it, without, his, without his revelation. We can't fathom without him bringing light into the darkness. But in the midst of all the hardship, in the midst of all the, the difficulty, in the midst, God is working. Making everything beautiful in its time. We're so quick to try to find a new season because we're so dissatisfied with the season we're in. When if we don't endure the season, if we don't go through this season... There's something that we're missing that's beautiful from God. What do you think it meant for the woman who had endured so long the, the issue of bleeding? When she saw Jesus and thought, if I could just touch his robe, if I could just get close enough to touch his cloak, she's healed. How did she see Jesus after being healed by him? Versus what she thought about him beforehand. Her faith became sight. What she believed would happen became the reality of what happened. What about Lazarus who struggled? All, not Lazarus who died and went into the grave. I'll talk about him in a second. But I'm talking about the, the poor man Lazarus. The pauper who sat outside the rich man's gate. What do you think his experience would be in our world? Poor man, beggar, overlooked by everyone. Outside a rich man's gate. Not even really able to feed off the crumbs of that man's table. He steps into the dawn. And he steps into the day. And he walks into paradise, into the, Abraham's bosom, and he's with the Lord. How much more meaningful was that? How special was that in that moment when he saw that God had shown him all his life this hardship that was diminished and extinguished by the Lord's own presence. How about Mary and Martha, who were so disappointed that Jesus didn't get to their house in time to heal their brother? Both of them met the Lord on his way. If you had just been here, we know you could have healed him. They'd seen him heal people. They knew, I know you could have healed him. You could have made him better if you had just been here, Lord. I don't know that they were upset or they were angry or they were hurting. But they certainly were disappointed that their brother was dead and they knew someone that could have changed everything if he'd have just been there. Jesus answered them, ah, wait a minute. I am the resurrection and the life. What they believed about Jesus, they, they, they not only became to, came to see his power to heal, but they came to see his power to give life when Jesus walked to that tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man raised and came out of the tomb. Tell me that didn't change the way they looked at Jesus. Tell me that they didn't find a greater sincere and more passionate love and greater confidence in his salvation. God is always being good to us. He is making everything beautiful in his time. Even though we may not understand it, when we get there, when we walk into the day, those roads will be wise. Hebrews 12, 7, and 11. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as 
sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Then the, the author goes on and, and, and shows us how fathers, good, good fathers, discipline their children. So a couple of other things. He comes to verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you not long for, do you not want, or do you think that there is another way to this fruit of righteousness? What parent wouldn't discipline their child? Parents all over our church and and friends of parents sitting in our church. And every one of us are children of someone that we're either loved by discipline or not. And we understand the difference. Doesn't it mean something that the Father in heaven is looking at us as his children? And even the hardest things that he allows or causes in our life are intended to bring about the peaceful fruit of righteousness. James 1, 2, 3, 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Such a hard thing to read. Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, rejoice in the midst of it. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Oh man, we all want perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But how often we feel discouraged when we meet trials of various kinds. Because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we, like David, can be certain that the Lord is always good to us. So lament, voice your grief, give your sorrow, express your worries and every other concern you have to God. Even ask the question, how long? But don't lose sight of who it is you're questioning. He is the Lord whose steadfast love is certain and powerful and strong. Look back at his words. See how he has always been at work on behalf of his people. How he's always been with them. He's never left them or forsaken them. And listen to his promises that he will be with us every step of the way. And if you're struggling, just think on this. He sent his son who came. He lived a sinless life. And yet he still endured suffering and hardship to the point of death. He suffered on that cross. He took upon us the penalty of our sin, proving once and for all the Lord's steadfast love. If you ever doubt his love, you think about Jesus and his cross. If you ever doubt that God is working for your good, think about Jesus and his cross. And if you've never trusted in that, it'd be no surprise to me to find out that you are swallowing in hopelessness and despair. But brother and sister Christian, because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we don't have to. We can rejoice, we can sing, we can pray, we can endure in faith because of the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's pray now. Father, help us.